Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. All right. Hello, everyone. I am Michael Shemtov, proprietor of Butcher and Bee, the daily uh, partner and redheaded stranger in Nashville, and uh, pumped to be on Eating Habits, talking real stuff. Um, or I guess I can say real shit about yeah. the restaurant industry Yeah, man. Uh, with Chef Jamie. So, Jamie, thanks for having me. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for being here. It's good to finally meet you. You as well. Yeah. I've kind of, I've, I've heard of you through the restaurant circles over the years, but we've never had a chance to bump into each other. So thank you for being here. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I are just from our little conversation beforehand are both somewhat workaholics. So (laughs) it's not unusual to be in the same industry, but both of us probably spend most of our time in the four walls or, um, you know, as I tell people, like when you're in the restaurant business and you're off, you're not really trying to go out, you know, you're trying to just do what other people do on their Tuesday night. So one of the things I always see is like our friends are like, let's go. You know, I'm like, I want to like, if I go on vacation, I want to get there and I want to do nothing. Yeah. Uh, I want to like watch Netflix on the couch, (laughs) which is what most people do on a Tuesday night. So they want to rage. But anyway, so here we are. Nice to meet you as well. So what do you do on a Tuesday night? What's uh, (laughs) what is that? What does that look like? What do normal people do? What does Michael do? I, so right now, so I'm, I'm splitting my time between Charleston and Atlanta mostly and some in Nashville. And, um, it's weird cause in Atlanta, all I have right now is one daily mm-hmm. and it closes at three. So there's actually not even a restaurant I can go to at night, Yeah, which is really, I mean, I would say like new slash unprecedented. I mean, 2001, I opened my first restaurant in Charleston and 20 years I've had a place. And that was Butcher and B, right? That was Mellow Mushroom on King Street. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I started with Mellow Mushroom on King Street. Opened to be about a decade later. But yeah, so I don't know. I've started making bread and pizza and like all the things that I used to take from my own bakery. (laughs) Now I got to recreate at home. Um, So yeah, cooking, a lot of cooking. Got two young kids. um, So a lot of like boring domestic stuff, but all good. Do you, do you bake your own bread for the, uh, for the grilled cheese sandwiches? Or do yeah. You <laughs> so when we decided to open a sandwich shop, there was no great bakery in Charleston. Mm-hmm. And so we realized we had to start making bread, just really like table steaks. Like you can't make a great sandwich without great bread. Yep. And then we got into, if you want to talk about the bakery business, like it's a absolute anchor that you drag around with you all day. Yeah. <laughs> let's we, not talk about let's that. Let's not talk Take about that. Take that off my list. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have a friend in Atlanta who told me they throw a massive holiday party if they break even for the year at their bakery. So yeah, so we started make, baking our own bread. And then I realized that, you know, your baker worked five days a week. You're really only as good as your second best baker. If you want a good second best baker, now you got too many people on for just one location. So we kind of kept stair-stepping. Like we added a couple of accounts. We did bread for Husk for a while and, uh, and McCready's and added more restaurants. And then it's like a beast that you got to feed because all these people were waiting for you to show up with their mm-hmm. bread for table service. And then like if your oven goes out or your mixer goes out, like they don't care. Yep. Uh, with all like... Yeah. lovingly they don't yeah, care yeah, yeah. about our problem so uh so yeah we sort of like back down but we make all our own bread here 
And we sell to like a couple. Now we sell the Whole Foods because uh, that's a much easier account to manage than a restaurant account. They're not yeah. texting us at midnight to change their order, right. et cetera. So, um, so yeah, so here we bake our own bread. Uh, we're about to open a second location of the Daily in Atlanta with a bakery inside of it. And we don't bake in Nashville, so. So why, why a second bakery in, well, in, uh, in Atlanta? Like what? What's driving that decision? If if it's such a if it's such a brutal kind of part of the I know, but like why why another restaurant? You know, just the restaurant. That's is, a good question. Like, it's already like brutal. So it's sort of like one of the things I think is like if you don't if you're in this business, you're in it. You should be in it because something else drives you. That's not just bottom line. Because there's yep. a lot. There are much easier ways to make money than this business. So. For us, it was like, we just want to control it. We want to make our own bread so we can just to, uh, it's somewhat. Uh, I mean, I can give you all the like strategic business reasons. It's a differentiator. We think that maybe with like three locations of the daily in Atlanta, we can be the scale where it economically makes sense. But all that stuff is really garbage. It's just, I like it. Yeah. I, li- I like the smell like of fresh bread. I like being in control. Of I like doing something that's hard. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, we talked a lot about it and there's like a, most of the good reasons are not to do it. <laughs> right. Um, but we're still going to do <laughs> As it. As with so. most great, you know, hospitality businesses. Yeah. Most of the reasons say don't. Yeah, exactly. But it's the heart behind it. And it's really like a bakery is great. Like if you want to buy yourself a job, like I just, somebody was just telling me yesterday about a guy in West Ashley who opened a little sandwich shop. I forgot what the name was. I'd love to name drop him. Cold Shoulder, great name for yeah. a restaurant, right? And um, they, my friend went there, but they were already sold out. So they were like, see, it looks great. And they told me about it. And I was thinking, I want to pay this person a visit and just like share with them what I learned from the first iteration of Butcher and Bee, which was a sandwich shop, which is mm-hmm. that you can't make money doing that. Right. If he, I think it's a he, if he, she is baking their bread and making it, like... You can buy yourself a job yep. as a bakery owner, yep. making, I don't know, maybe fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year. And I'm not saying that's not respectable and you do what you love and it's a craft and that's great. Mm-hmm. It is very, very hard to make money to run a successful business that's a bakery. So I, like when we got stuck in those early days, like trying to figure it out, I called a couple people, one in Portland, Oregon, um, and I called an arcade bakery, which no longer exists in New York. And I talked to the owners and they both basically both told me the same thing. Like you have two routes to making money with a bakery. One is 24 hour day production, three vans, as many mar- as, ma- as much wholesales, many farmers markets, as many supermarkets as you can get to. And the other one is you bake like 15 beautiful loaves a day. You slice them, you put some pickled shrimp on top, you sell it for 17 bucks and that's your, yep. We're not doing either, so <laughs> I don't know. We need to take it. We need to figure that out. So Sometimes there, I look so at there's it. There's a third way. Then, I know. Is there's, what you're a, saying, there's a third or? way, which is the stubborn way, which yeah. is what we're doing. But um, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, uh, a diversion. So yeah, um, we've got two more dailies planned in Atlanta. Uh, one's about to go into permitting, and the third one um, is probably about a year out. Gotcha. So. And so that so that and the third one will obviously help support the bakery and kind of keep that. Those, those three units will kind of help each other. That's the theory. That's the theory, yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. It's been humbling. Uh, actually, our start in Atlanta has been a lot slower than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. I like picking sort of off-the-beaten-path locations and, and, and sort of making it more interesting to get to and more parking and a bigger space and lower rent. 
you know, uh, I think you make your money in restaurants pretty much in years five to seven on. Uh-huh. Uh, but the people have not yet discovered us in sufficient numbers in Atlanta. Yeah. And I wonder if that's happened with you too. Sometimes like you open a restaurant, you're like, all right, cool. We've gotten like these great chefs that I respect have come through and like the opinion leaders and like the cool kids are here, but like, damn, I need the masses to like follow them here pretty shortly. Yeah. So um, we, 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 we experienced that here in Charleston. So we opened two restaurants in Charlotte, you know, they ended up being juggernaut situations, very successful, very fast. And then we expanded about three years in, we expanded down here because this is kind of where the cool kids were at. Right. right? This is where Sean Brock was, this is where, you know, the kind of culinary scene in the South was, was anchored here. So we wanted to be in this market. When we opened on market street, it was like a damn ghost town. And we, it was like pulling teeth to get people to come out and have a good meal. And we, we were, we were scratching our heads. We're like, how is yeah. this, what's going on? It took, it took about a year for us to, to gain traction. And now it's like off the rails. Like, nice. um, like we have a great following and business is good. But that first year was like, we were wondering for a minute, Yeah. <laughs> like, did we make a mistake here or what? I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask you some questions as you ask me uh, questions. <laughs> uh, Cause I'm curious about some of your backgrounds. So, like one of the things I love asking people is like, where was the, was there like a step or something? Was there like a story that hit? I mean, obviously we're on Top Chef and I'm mm-hmm. sure that was like, yes. took it to a whole nother level, but like what clicked, even in Charlotte would click. And did you have a, were you cooking in Charlotte prior? Yes. And you had a reputation. So yes. sort of like that helped feed into the opening. Yep. hundred percent. So um, we were riding the success in Charlotte and kind of our group's um, support in Charlotte. We have a really great, anchor support in Charlotte. That's kind of like home base for us where we started. And so we were kind of riding that, um, that wave and, and then it kind of hit the sandbar here and dud it out. We were kind of, you know, I was here a lot. I was, uh, we were actually had another restaurant in Charlotte. So I was bouncing between stores between here, Charlotte and all over the place. I think where it hit was when we won over the local restaurant scene. It's a very clicky, um, uh, group here mm-hmm. you know they don't like outsiders in charleston and we were perceived i think as being you know yeah from people charlotte. from the city from yeah. the charlotte right and um and not from charleston and so my business partner actually moved here like relocated from charlotte bought a house bought a house here or started rented a house here and moved his family down and integrated into the neighborhood mm-hmm. and i think that having that local um, presence and then winning over the the you know becoming not a flash in the pan yeah. i think people wanted to see that we would stick around that we would deliver what we said we would deliver or what we you know what the expectation was and that took time and i think once the locals kind of got on board it it felt like some pressure was relieved yeah that was also a moment where i feel like all the energy was on upper king and sort of moving away from the market yeah uh when you guys came mm-hmm. so maybe some of that yeah it became it became a bit of a ghost town yeah um on, on market but i but it's definitely coming back you know i think it's that whole cycle of you know life right it's happening and what did top chef do for your business um that's a good question for for business i don't i don't know that it really affected business in charlotte i think it definitely helped here for sure and I think just the visibility of Top Chef, I mean, it's such a huge production right. that we, I mean, there's still people that come today and will grab me. And if I'm in the dining room, they'll be like, oh, you know, yeah. let's get a picture, let's talk or whatever. So, so there's residual 
marketing power there um, just from being on the show. I mean, it, crazy. Yeah. By the way, what's the right way? Sorry, I'll stop asking you questions yeah. here in a second. Yeah. But what's I'm turning right, this back to you What's next? the right way to ask for a selfie? Uh, just, hey, can we get a picture? Cool. Yeah. Or, or, or a lot of people will just look at me like, like this, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll grab their phone and be like, here we go. <laughs> like, I've gotten quite good at it now. Nice. I hated it at first. Okay, but back to you. All right, back to me. So why restaurants? Um, so you, you, went to, you went to college here in Charleston. Yeah, but I was, uh, I was entrepreneurial like as a high school kid. I started a business. wasn't really a great business, but I, I, I I'm really good at starting things. I'm not excellent at like the ongoing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I started like a restaurant-adjacent business. I basically convinced restaurants to let me go out and market them and... I was selling like cards that would give you like a free glass of wine with an entree or whatever you, you know, it was like a menu of things that you get and I'd keep half the money and the restaurant would keep half the money. And my, my thought was I'm going to hire all these people. They'll go out, like knock on doors, sell these things or sell these things at like fairs, whatever. And then they'd work for me. I'd get a cut. They'd be doing all the work. The restaurant would get a cut. I like thought I could set it up where it was like <laughs> light touch once a week. I'd meet these people. I give them more cards. They collect their money. Yeah, uh, wasn't anything like that. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I actually had. I think a lot of times it's like you look at something and you're like some somebody in your life is influential early and that tips you or like you see mm-hmm. something or you meet somebody and that inspires you. So for me, that was my cousin. So all my family, all my dad's family, was in Israel. I was born in Israel. We spent eight years there. The only relative that was in the States was in the restaurant business in California. So my sort of connection to home and family was going to California to see my relative. And he had at the time like six, seven restaurants, probably four or five different concepts. And so the setup was like one day was Disney. One day was the beach. The other day was like driving all five restaurants to check in on them. Yeah. And I just remember like walking with him through kitchens. I remember walking like I remember very vividly. He was like, there's a delivery driver there. And he was like, I can't you're on COD now, you know, and I remember my cousin like explaining to me how you navigate that process. Mm -hmm. And I remember even asking him, like, how do you get paid in a restaurant? And he was like, well, you have a bank account, you know, payrolls every two weeks, rents once a month. Um, And hopefully that one week that's not payroll and not rent, there's enough money in the bank account that you can take some out. And I was, I just remember thinking like that is such a week, like just trying to process that of like, there's no paycheck, there's no stability. You're just like hoping that one week out of the month, there's enough money there. Um, (laughs) And yet I still got into it, but yeah, I mean, I think that was a big influence. Uh, I was like 13, 14, 15 Mm -hmm. uh, when we were going out there in summers and, um, seeing that and just seeing the way he navigated the world just felt like fun. And then I had this silly idea that like I would open a restaurant and it would similar to, you can tell like a pattern in my schemes. I was like, I'll open a restaurant. It's going to run on its own. Like I'm going to move to New York, maybe go to grad school, like live in Washington square park, you know, five grand a month apartment. The restaurant's going to be throwing all this cash off. And then like, really, I just got humbled. I mean, we opened a mellow mushroom in January of 2001. And I think somewhere around Oh three, I started paying myself $300 a week. And like prior that I just wrote a restaurant check to pay for rent and to buy myself new shoes. And that was about it. Um, I mean, it was, it was brutal. It was brutal, partially because we didn't know how to run it, partially just margins are tight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things, like you and I were talking about this a touch earlier, is like the public perception is like 
you're killing it. Uh-huh. And actually one of my struggles early on was like, I didn't know how we were going to make payroll. And yet people were telling me like, I can't get into your restaurant. Every time I drive by, there's a line. And you know, we're always like, we'll drive by on a Tuesday at five thirty and come in. Um, <laughs> right. People want to eat at seven o'clock. People go out to eat on Friday night. That's what mm-hmm. 80% of the public does. So yep. it looks busy to you because you, like many other people, are out on Friday night at 7 o'clock. Right. I remember being in Philadelphia and like just reading their little weekly paper and it said, like, here's how to get into the seven hardest restaurants in town. Like, we asked the owners, you know, yeah. Mark Vetri, how do we get a table at your restaurant? He was like, come on Monday night. Yeah. You know, it was like every <laughs> single person was Take like, your pick. come at 5 o'clock. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. like, it's really not a secret. Right. But apparently it is like, but apparently to the general to the general, correct to restaurant folk. We're like, yeah, there's always a table. Yeah, totally. And yeah. that's why I, I sort of like, I wish prior to being like when we were just nominated for a James Beard award, I was like, Oh shit, I'm actually might have to follow through on this. But I used to just say all the time, if we ever won a beard award, or if we ever landed on the cover of Bon Appetit next day, no reservations. Yeah. Like is no reservation is just the best way to go. I think for a restaurateur because it's like you, sh- the demand curve will shape itself. People will say to themselves like, "Let's go early because it's going to be a two-hour wait." Uh-huh. It's really hard to like push people to those like five thirty spots. I mean, you either have to be really really good or you have to be appealing to like a much older clientele to get five thirty reservations. Uh, I see it in Nashville where like we our restaurant crushes. We could probably do another hundred covers on a Friday or Saturday night, just demand for supply. Mm-hmm. And at like five thirty, we're full. That's awesome. Yeah, it's harder, and it's sort of like then what you try to do is you try to push them to like six and eight, and then you just basically like smack the kitchen twice yep. and the service staff twice. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know that we've like figured out. I think you just have to be really 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 good or be perceived as really 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 good (laughs) yeah so we we have not i don't think that we've cracked the code i think one of our strategies was to try to handle as much of the volume as we can like if everybody's going to come between seven and nine on friday night right we need to be ready to go and we need to be able to turn tables at that time and we're not a fine dining restaurant we're an upscale kind of concept but it's not fine dining. We're not wearing yeah. tablecloth. There's not like, you know, we, we are able to, to turn tables if we need to, but that takes a lot of focus and training. Like, it's not just like, Hey, the kitchen's like, I remember the early, early years, you know, when I was, you know, my cooking was a lot more elaborate than, than some of the stuff that we're doing now. And those turn, like we were trying to push the volume so we could break even like, we're like you know, we're, yeah. the, we're a startup. We have to be able to make some money. And that, that battle was, how do, I, how do I push the envelope from a culinary standpoint, but also be able to turn a table in an hour and a half? You know, you can't cook from scratch and do that. So we yeah. had to figure out the mechanics of doing it. It took us, the back of the house, a long time to kind of get that system. But once we did, I mean, we're a machine now. Like, we, we have a very kind of explicit design to our menu um, and the way we approach our dishes that we can, like, bang food out. On the flip side, the service staff, that's a tough job to be able to flip tables, stay personable, stay hospitable, and make it all seem like it's the way it's supposed to be. Sure. And not like, you're like hey, get, the, get out of here. Yeah, know? exactly. Um, so it's a, it's a 
tightrope. Yeah. It's think. also tightrope because it's like you're trying to sell nice wine, you're trying to sell nice food, right? But you're trying to sell it. So I'll tell you a quick story. I was in Israel uh, right before the pandemic, and I called a restaurant. Somebody recommended it to me, and I looked it up. It looked awesome. I was like, all right, we want to go there. Uh, so I called and I told them like they were kind of hemming and hawing about whether there's space. I said, listen, normally I wouldn't say this, but like I'm in the industry. Somebody in the industry here highly recommended you. I'm only in Tel Aviv for a couple of days. Like, we'd really love to get in. And she was like, okay, I've got a table for you, but you got to be up. Like, you can have it from this time to this time. Yeah. And I was like, wow. I mean, okay. this was not like the GM. This was the host. Yeah. Just tell me on the phone. Yeah, straight up. Straight up. Yeah, like, if you don't mind jumping up at yeah. 7.15, yeah. okay, I'll give it to you. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. Like, what if every restaurant was like, yeah, we'll take your reservation at 7. You got the table till 8.30, and then I need it back. Yeah. Or the meter starts running or something. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I like that. So, yeah, I liked it too, but I don't know that I would fly in the States. I feel like there's a little bit of a different mentality and maybe we'll get into this is sort of like how entitled customers should be like how much it is their table for tonight or they are always right and sort of what the trade-offs that they might need to make if they sort of want that those things because i just i don't know that people realize sort of what it takes to put food on their plate they and don't I think, and a I'm lot of the conversations my wife and i've been having now is just sort of like we just need to realize better value for what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I feel weird about it because I'll go like, I'll go to the daily and granted I'm not paying the bill, but like I'll ring myself up for, you know, a cortado and something for breakfast. And it's like after tax, 12, 13, 14 bucks. And I'm like, man, that sucks. You can't have, you know, a latte and avocado toast is like 15 bucks with tax. Mm -hmm. And I feel bad telling people it's 15 bucks for a piece of toast with half the full avocado and a latte, but that's what it takes. Yep. And at the daily people were willing to pay it. Like it's the right blend of quality and speed and whatever, and mm -hmm. whatever it is. But I don't know that we've gotten the B there. And so that's what I'm trying to think about now. And, and a lot of that is like perceived value. It's like, we just put a shrimp dish on and it's like 10 bucks and they're like 31, 35. They're not big shrimp. Yeah, they're And we started at five, and then we dropped the price to nine because I was like, I don't want people to be like $2 a shrimp and they're tiny. Yep. But it's like, you know what? If you want Miss Paula to go out on their boat yes. at these fuel prices yes. and bring and go out seven days a week and bring. I always thought about having a shrimp set that was called Yesterday's Shrimp yeah. because it sounds like not something you'd want to eat. But that's actually the freshest shrimp I can possibly serve you is Yesterday's Shrimp because the right. shrimpers go out. They're back at three. Yep. There's no way you're picking up shrimp at 3 p.m. and getting it on the dinner menu. You just can't clean it and process it yep. fast enough, right? Exactly. So, like, the freshest shrimp I could serve you is yesterday's shrimp. So I always thought about <laughs> calling a dish yesterday's shrimp. Yep. Just as kind of a mind fuck for people to be like. I think I think it would work if if you if you if you train your staff to tell the story. Yeah. Right. Because what what I've noticed and and a lot of like the projects that I'm working on now, like the podcast, is about telling the story, right? And so and people love a story, like that's. And, and that's why I got into cooking, right? So like the moral of the story is that this is the best shrimp you can have. I actually, I actually cooked some last night. I went over to Miss, to Tarvin, Tarvin and pick, yeah. picked it up um, for, a, for a little thing I'm doing. At your and, house, you cooked some. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. cooked it here. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm actually starting, I'll talk about it later, but I'm, I'm doing like a little project where I'm, I'm doing like some cooking stuff with local, cool. local things. So I went over there and man, like there's nothing better 
than food that is like fresh and nutritious and like ready to go. Yeah. You don't have to mess with it. And that's the story. You could do that. You could say yesterday shrimp yeah. and get people being like, what the fuck? But then tell them the story and they're like, and it, it, educating them. Yeah. Right. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. You know? And then they feel connected to it because they that's understand right. the story. And so this is our struggle, like people like you and I. So we've got a lot of similarities in our restaurant group, Atlanta, Nashville. Yep. I'm not in Charlotte yet. Maybe someday. Yeah. Charleston. Like you can't, it's hard to do that. Right. Like if I, if all I had, it's like, there's a saying, I'm sure you've heard it. It's like every chef, every cook wants to be a chef. Every chef wants to go back to being a cook. <laughs> yeah. It's like, or every, a dishwasher. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> I know with I one restaurant job. is like, Oh man, I'd love to be like you and have five or, you know, more. And everybody I know with five or more is like, I just wish I had one and I could like know every server and make sure that they tell that story. Yes. Like I wish I could just be at the host stand all day. Yep. And it's funny. People ask me like, where should I go eat? And I'm like, go eat at the place where there's like a chef working that has some equity in the restaurant and they're in the kitchen on the past or they're cooking or yep. something like I send everybody to chubby fish. Mm-hmm. Cause I know that like James and Johanna are yep. going to be, if they're open, James and Johanna are like very likely there. Yep. Um, and it's the same, I've seen the same crew in the front of house and pretty much the same crew in the kitchen for ever since they reopened post COVID. Yep. And you, it's hard to do that when you're also three days a month in Nashville and 10 days a month in Atlanta. It's just hard to keep those sort of yep. connections. We got this great guy that like work, just started working for us part-time, and I'm, I really want to get him full-time at the B. But I was like, where's your, other, where's your full-time job? And he told me, and I was like, man, that's a great chef. That's a great human being, you know? And, mm-hmm. like, I can't tell you, come work for me. Right. Peace. I'll be back in two weeks that chef is there in the kitchen with you all the time, you know? So mm-hmm. I was like, I felt conflicted. I'm like, I really need you here full time. Right. I love your skill set, but actually you're probably better off. You're in the right place for you probably. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I, I, I tried to, I tried to thread that needle by having a partner at every location. That yes. was like really my vision for how we'd build Butcher and Bees. Like each restaurant would have a chef partner and or GM partner. Yep. And they would have somewhere between like 10 to 25% ownership like actual equity i think there's a lot of um for like profit interest and things Mm -hmm. and i think what people don't realize i was just talking to a friend of mine who's potentially going to get equity in this large restaurant project and i was like that's a four million dollar project if they gift you 10 percent sweat equity that's a four hundred thousand dollar gift which is also a hundred and fifty thousand dollar tax bill yep like if you're not prepared to pay that tax bill, you're actually not really prepared to take that equity stake. Right. So in that situation, something like profit interest would be better, but I actually like to give them like equity. Like they have the same rights as I have. The interesting thing is just trying to balance of like, if I own 80% and they own 20%, I want to include them in the decisions, but it's not exactly 50, 50. Right. But it's like, if it's just a benevolent dictatorship, then why even bring them in? So that's kind of a dance of like, yes, you get your say, but it's not exactly. How do you, how do you navigate that dance? Cause I think that's, we, we do similar things in our group with, with equity and then profit sharing. We have like different levels of partnership that we kind of explore because obviously like the people running the stores are the future, right? Like we can have great ideas and we can help push things along, but at the end of the day, there's somebody else is going to be doing the work um, on some level and should have some ownership. So how do you thread the needle for that? How do you approach that partnership with your operating partners? 
Uh, so what we've done that's worked well is we basically, I tell them like, we'll give them the deal that their like rich uncle would give them uh, if they had a rich uncle, right? So, so <laughs> I'll give you an example. Like we had, I had two partners with us, like 15%-ish stake at Butcher & Bee in Nashville. We had a great general manager come on and we really wanted to make him a partner. And, and now I really want him to actually be involved in all of our restaurants moving forward. Uh, but at the time it was at one. Mm -hmm. And so I talked with my two existing partners and I said, for me, this is like, I don't mind giving up a little bit for, to just not have to think about the store as much. Like it's a quality right. of life thing for me and right. I want him committed. And like, just imagine if somebody, if a hotel called him tomorrow and offered him another 50 grand, you know, you, we would imagine you would expect him to take it. And there's yep. a lot of nice hotels opening in Nashville, you know, yep. and somebody else would love to have somebody like him. So let's give him the right incentive package. So what we did, I let them set the valuation. So they said a million. They said, we think this restaurant's worth a million bucks. Right. Uh, this was pre COVID. Um, mm -hmm. and so we sold him, we basically had a hundred shares. So we created 10 more and then he bought those from the business, but he put in like, a small amount, like under 10,000 down. Mm -hmm. And then he's paying the rest over five, six years. And every time we take a profit distribution, we let him pick what percentage. I think he picked like 75%. I suggested 50, but like 75% of the distribution goes to pay off his loan. Yep. And it's a, like two and a half. It's like the minimum legally allowed interest rate. Mm -hmm. So we basically made it so it's it doesn't affect his quality of life, ideally. It's a couple hundred bucks a month, which I know is not nothing. Right. Uh, but he felt comfortable that he can make that payment. And then he basically gets his share of the profit now, even though he's paying it off. So he's using right. his profit distribution to buy his ownership. So yep. is it the best financial deal for us? Probably not in a very narrow way. But I mean, I think part of the game of restaurants is like thinking about things differently right mm -hmm. thinking about this is setting this up for year five on or thinking about this isn't the smartest financial deal but we get this guy in and committed and when somebody calls him on his day off and says there's a leak or there's a thing or something that he's going to be much more motivated to go fix it because it's his money on the line yep i also now like to get everybody to sign the leases and sign the loans and just even though it's even though the bank may be coming after me seven times before they go after them. Yep. I think it's good just for the psychological commitment of like being on the hook. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I did that. So my, my, my entry into ownership with my, with the group I'm with now was a sweat equity deal. We were a startup. So um, I was a part of the opening, you know, ownership team and my ownership stake vested over a three year period. And, but I was on the hook. Like I was signing, personal guarantees and all that stuff when we were opening. Um, and that was part of the risk, you know, the risk kind of deal with, with, with the group. And I think that, um, that just makes it so you can't walk. You yeah. can't be like oh, a bad day or argument and yep. fuck this place or, yeah. you know, I mean, you're still on that. You're still on that note, even if you quit. Yeah. Like, and if the restaurant goes belly up, they're going to call you. That's right. Like they're coming, That's <laughs> like, right. you know, you could, you can act immature if you want your names on the dotted line. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think that was one of the best thing. I mean, one thing that we set out to do is we had all been taken advantage of by an employer at some point along the way. Whether we were making somebody else successful, we were working our asses off for somebody and not getting any distributions or bonus, like the bonus structure is a fucking joke. Mm -hmm. Like we don't even do that because like I've had bonus structures where I've never hit a bonus, right? And so, so we wanted to set something up where A, it was really tangible 
stuff. It's things that you can hit. And being a profit sharing partner or an equity partner, you have skin in the game, but you also get the rewards, you know? And that, and so we, we do that with many of our, our team now. And it's, it's amazing how they invest their time and energy and focus, even the focus. I mean, they're focused when they're at work, you know, when they have skin in the game. Yeah. I think, I think everybody should be doing it if they can. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, I also think that there's, for all the altruistic reasons to do it, there's plenty of selfish reasons to do it. Sure. So. Well, I think you touched on one, right? It's like you don't have to worry as much about yeah. that business when you have somebody, you have a partner on the ground there. Totally. Right? Like, I mean, one of the only ways we've been able to expand into other markets is by having partners on the ground. You know, we kind of split up and we all kind of, you know, we, we trust each other to oversee kind of what's going on in the operations and then having chef partners or, or manager partners we, we know that if there's a, an issue that they can't handle, they're going to reach out to us and, you know, protect their interests as well. Yeah, actually, that's part of why what makes us pick people to be partners is that they do reach out to us at the right times. Like one of the things I'm not looking for is like a hero who thinks they can just solve everything because right. I don't I can't solve everything, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the guy in Nashville, I was saying, like one of the best things about him is that he calls me like at the right moments with the right problems and is like how would you approach this or let's talk through or think through doesn't mean that he takes my advice all the time, but right. he's, he comes to me at the right points. And I told him that's something I really value. I don't want to, I'll call you if the place is burning down, but shy of that, I'll handle everything. It's like, I, I have to remind my team and my, my friend, uh, in, in Chicago is a restaurateur in Chicago says like the biggest issue but one of the biggest challenges of leadership is not being relegated to middle management by your team. So I'm like, I'm, co I'm constantly telling my team, like I wasn't like a software person that made that like sold my company for a hundred million. It was like, I love food and wine. I'll open a restaurant. Like I was a busser and a fry cook and then made saute. And then, you know, like I came from the restaurant business. I started a restaurant at 22 years old. Like I did not, you know, not consulting with me, not bringing me into the process. You're just missing like 30 years of restaurant experience. Right. And it's not, I'm not the person that you need to just keep me at the margins <laughs> because I just will lob some idiotic idea. Like whatever it is, I'm sure you've seen this too. Yes. You bring a new manager in. It's almost inevitable. Like we're, we have a wonderful GM now at the daily here. Uh, but prior to her, I think we had four GMs in four years and every one of them was like, you could set your clock to it. Three months in, they'd be like, we need a bunch more retail SKUs. It's like, nope, we've been down this road. <laughs> People don't want to buy retail. They want to get coffee and breakfast and go, you know? And sort of like these same ideas rehashed. Merch is fine. And I don't mind. And I actually think like I'm, the battle I'm fighting with my team always on merch is like lower the price. Yeah. Like we're not making money off of selling hats. Yeah. Like we'll sell five hats in a month and we'll sell... 50 pieces of avocado toast in a day. Like right. the hat is just like, make it really nice. Yeah. So people want to wear it. Yep. Like I never understand the cheap t-shirt. Like I, hate, I am not going to wear the cheap t-shirt. Right. I hate it. And I don't understand that you, you spend the money to get an expensive shirt and it's a $40 t-shirt. It's like, yeah. you don't need a 35% cost of goods sold on a t-shirt. <laughs> right. You can take an 80% cost of goods shirt on a t -shirt. Like, I don't care how many you sell. The more, the merrier. It's not right. your business. So anyway, that's my little diatribe on, <laughs> on merch. I like it. 
Yeah, you went on this diatribe, and now my thoughts are all scrambled. I was like, now I'm thinking about merch. Yeah. I'm thinking about T-shirts, actually. Like, I'm like, God, I, I just like, I got hooked on a good T-shirt, and I'm wearing it out. So now, like, you make more on the, the repeat business because I'm like, oh, I got to buy all these T-shirts. Have to be. Like, I've got to get one in each color. Yeah. Right? Because it's like, it's that fit. Totally. Um, it's that quality thing. Cool. I got to figure out where to go from here now. Um, you scrambled me. Yeah, no worries. Forwards or backwards? Let's yeah. either go back and well, we were talking. Talk oh, about, we're talking about partners. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about. I want to know why restaurants. That's like we we started there and then we kind of went off yeah. topic. But it's like, so you're not a chef. Yeah, no, you're not a. You're not. You know. So what I, what is it about restaurants that's so appealing to yeah, you? Yeah. Like, so I mean, I I would. Like I would be connection. delighted to have you over and I would cook you a nice meal at home, but I'm not a restaurant chef. Right. So it's like, it's not, I, I don't, I mean, I've worked a line before. I actually worked a line a couple nights ago, which was really sort of healthy. We were talking about dishes what and station? complex. I worked grill. I had a grill cook come in like two hours late and then like clap back at my manager for calling mm. him out for being late. He said, I don't want to hear nothing about that. <laughs> and if Michael was here, I'd tell him the same thing. And so my manager came to me. I said, well, tell him I'm here. Yeah. And I'm ready to have that conversation. Let's do it. And I um, it. yeah. And so I gave him a minute. They didn't come back. I walked over. He was yelling at the manager again. I was like, look, we can either like sit and chat as adults, like not here in public view. Mm-hmm. Or you can walk. Like I didn't want him to walk. Yeah. I thought he would be like, all right, cool. Let's j-. I'm like, I'm not trying to yell at you. Like, let's talk. Yeah. There's probably some underlying reason or something going on in your life. Like your kid's sick. You got in an argument with somebody, your car broke. Like there's probably something that, that what you actually need is like empathy. Mm-hmm. And that's what my manager came to him with. Cause we like talked beforehand and I was like, look, you never know. Don't just like, don't be like, Hey, what the fuck? You're two hours late. And he's going to be like, yeah, my daughter's in the hospital. I'm sorry. I didn't call you. Yeah. Like, I'm dealing with a bunch of stuff. Give them the opportunity to tell us, I'm so sorry. Here's what's going on in my life before you go, you know, off the rail, but also like, it's important. I'm trying to move everybody to a more professional culture. I don't know if you want to sort of dig into this, but we had this really interesting thing at the B where my chef and CDC both left within a month of the James Beard nomination and, uh, and the sous chef who was already planning to move. And if you stack my kitchen org chart, probably like seven of the top 10 people left in six weeks. Um, I would have thought they at least hung around to see if we won, uh, but they all left. And, and I spent a long time, like two months, kind of on this slow burn conversation with the, somebody, I think if he came to Charleston, would have been one of the five best chefs in Charleston, but just couldn't close a deal. Um, and so just spent a long time with sort of one, trying to recruit one person and that fell through. So I'm kind of in this period and, and the issue was, and I don't, I think the guys that left are wonderful people and they're both still in Charleston cooking, but it became kind of clear that just they weren't, they weren't managing it to a level, trying to get to a level of excellence working mm-hmm. towards that. So, uh, after they left and I started spending more time here, I found like things in the walk-in that were two months old in a corner, you know, that mm-hmm. were not ferments. They were just yeah. overlooked. Um, <laughs> and planned. just like laziness. Yeah. Um, and again, nothing against, not against them. They're nice people. They make delicious food. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, did important work for us when they did it, but there was just not the sense of professionalism. And unfortunately, a lot of things that anybody who's out there listening, who's in a restaurateur or aspiring, like one thing I hope you take away from this conversation is like, 
things roll and build on themselves. Yep. Right. And so I'm now trying to like really up the standard so that if somebody like you 20 years ago came and staged, you'd be like, yeah, this is a place I want to work rather than saying like, yeah, this is a place where people show up two hours late and then say, I don't want to hear about it, you know? Um, yes. And so, so yeah, I don't know how we get your partners while you got yeah. in the restaurant business. I'm not a chef, but I can right. work the line. I work grill that night. Yeah, so you're working grill. I work grill that night that I sent that he went home. And then I work Garmo twice, uh, once on a Friday night, totally got my ass kicked. And once on a Monday night and also got my ass kicked. And it, it, the interesting thing is like every once in a while, it's probably good for us to do it. Cause I was like, there's like seven plate touches on a plate of hummus. Yep. And Why? we're this like our number two seller. <laughs> yeah. Like, does it actually need all this stuff <laughs> right. on it? Or can it just be like hummus, tahini, olive oil? Yep. Um, and then maybe if you want the hot sauce, you get on the side or something. So I don't know. It's, it's good. It like helped me sort of rethink some of the things yeah. on that station. Um, but yeah, how, but how I can cook. I can operating? work. How, how, how often are you in the kitchen or in the restaurant? I mean, like- I haven't worked three shit. I've worked a shift here or there cause I happen to be there mm-hmm. and somebody's late or somebody has an issue. And it's like, I, I think that part of the, in the restaurant business, I think part of being a leader is showing everybody couple times a year if mm-hmm. needed that you will roll up your sleeves and help the dishwasher dig out of a jam or help the line cook or take a table because you're down a server or whatever needs to happen. Right. Um, I think that that goes a long way with the staff. And I think it's important because the other thing that I think is important is to like present yourself professionally. So like I'll always wear a collar shirt pretty much to work. And I, yeah. I learned early on when I started showing up in a collar shirt and I go to bust a table Somebody would be there and be like, I got this, sir. You don't have to do that, you know? And when I showed up with a T-shirt and I go bust a table, people would be like at the server station watching me bust a table while they're chatting about what they did last night. Yep. And so I was like, wow, this is like... A weird perception how, yeah, thing, right? Yeah, exactly. So I just started wearing like button-ups yep. basically all the time. I don't work station. It's very rare that I work a station. Yeah. But I, don't, I didn't mind. And, yeah. uh, and in fact, last night I was chatting with the guy who, norm- who works at station like three, four nights a week. He's the guy, he's our part-timer who I was saying I would love to get him full-time. And he was like, yeah, I heard you worked at Friday. I heard you did pretty good. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm glad it's like getting, a- I'm glad the it's word getting has around. gotten around. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, it's not, not my role in the restaurant. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I like the business. I understood it. I really like stock trading too. I thought I might get into stock trading and then I had this ridiculous notion that, if I open a restaurant, I want, I really had my eyes set on like a Ivy league school, uh-huh. but the college of Charleston threw some nice scholarship money my way and just where I was in my life at the time. It made sense. And I love that I had a great experience here, but I was still thinking like UPenn or Harvard or MIT for grad school. And I was thinking, how's a kid from college Char- with a college Charleston degree going to get into MIT school management? And I was like, I know I'll open my own restaurant. I'll open my own business right out of college. And that's going to look really good on my college, on my grad school applications. I mean, the dumbest reason to open a restaurant. Yeah. Um, and so I just, something I thought I understood, I thought I could do. You're familiar with it a little I bit. Familiar. Yeah. I, you know, I'd worked everything, but sir, you know, I have I've never served. I don't really love that dynamic and my memory sucks. I'd be that guy who's like, Oh God, yeah. you asked me for something an hour ago and I forgot. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so uh, I just felt like it was something I could understand. And I also just saw an opportunity. Um, I grew up walking distance from Mel mushrooms. So I get like dropped off by the bus, like before I was 16 
could drive. I'd get dropped off by the bus and I'd walk to Mellow Mushroom like three, four days a week. And then I got to Charleston and I was like, how's there no Mellow Mushroom here? Yeah. And I'd go visit my friends in Charlotte or Auburn or Clemson. And I'd see that there's Mellow Mushrooms there or opening there. And so I thought, all right, like if by the time I graduate college, nobody's done it, I'm going to do it. Uh, so I basically like my junior year in college just started pivoting all my time. And it was like a interesting period because it was, I had to start making a lot of choices differently than other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like I'd go out, but I wasn't out till the end of the night. And I was already thinking about like saving my money to open a restaurant. Right. Um, and then I basically spent my whole senior year like working towards that and then open one. And then, I don't know, it was a little bit of getting stuck. It's a little bit of like you do what you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do really like it. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily love where I am now. I've put myself back in this position. We have four projects in the works that when we like green lighted them, we thought would cost like, I don't know, rough <laughs> mat, three and a half million. And they're probably going to cost 4.8 million. And um, when we got, I basically opened a restaurant a year from 2011 to 2019, at least yeah. one every calendar year. I went from like one in 2010, I had one, and in 2019, I opened my 10th, yeah. and it just burned me out, yeah. and I was like, as we got into 2018, I just thought to myself, I, so when I, I, not that this is important, but when I was younger, I would walk around saying, by the time I'm 40, I want to have 10 restaurants, Right. and then I just like barreled, I'm like super stubborn, it was like, yep. I, I, I woke up one day, goal. and I was like, I have eight, and I'm not happy. Like, how's a ninth going to make me happy? Like, I wake up, and I don't even know where to go because I feel like I have so many problems <laughs> in so many places. And, like, the three or four places that are working and making money are just supporting the places that aren't. And it just didn't, I don't know, it didn't feel fun. And I was like, I just need a break. I need a break from negotiating operating agreements. I need a break from, like, all the lease and construction stress yeah. and everything. And so we, I just decided, like, we're going to pause. We had one in development and open in july of 2019 that's redheaded stranger in nashville yep and just just to take a break we paused and then how lucky were we because then COVID hit you know seven eight months later and we didn't have anything going and we didn't have these giant cash needs to see construction through right and like one of the things that i learned just have a fresh restaurant that just opened correct in july the previous year however that restaurant is a 50-50 partnership with the chef. Nice. So he was a minority partner, like 15-ish percent of Butcher and Bee Nashville. And he really, like, not just proved himself to me, but proved himself to be one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. One of the rare chefs that, like, understands operations and cost and has, like, got a calm demeanor. I mean, the guy wakes up and, like, reads a newspaper in print in the mornings. <laughs> And just very well read, very smart, but also like very creative food, very delicious food. So when he told me he had an idea for a restaurant uh, that was really personal to him, to me, the, like the best formula for a restaurant is like somebody who's worked in fine dining and then they take that same like approach to sourcing and technique and they start cooking food that's like relevant to them. What yep. their aunt made, what their mom made, what reminds them of childhood. Yep. Uh, there's a place, Llama Inn in Brooklyn, that's Peruvian food. The chef was like at EMP and like yep. other nice restaurants. And then he started cooking like his, his Peruvian. Food. Yeah. His. And that was one of the most memorable meals I've had in the last decade. Yeah. Right. And I was like, this is it. This is the formula. So when Chef Brian in Nashville started telling me about his childhood in Texas and Colorado and his love for like food of that region um i want to do something with them and we did that restaurant 50 50 so 
even though it was like new in COVID, I never really had to worry about it because I knew it was like, he's not going to fail telling his story. Right. Right. It's yes. not like, it's hard to get motivated in COVID. And I mean, it was such a beat down, like putting everything in a to-go box Yeah. and like not being able to, like the whole, not the whole reason, but half the reason why we're in it is to watch people eat the food and smile. Yeah. Right. The and hospitality like, aspect hospitality of taking it. care of them. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I remember like early, probably summertime, summer, late summer of 2022, I had a realization. It was somewhat at that restaurant. I was like, we've lost all hospitality here. Like everything is like, read this sign before you come in and don't do this and stay six feet away from that person. And, <laughs> and I was like, instead of like blue tape on the bar stools and these signs <laughs> that say, don't sit there. Like, why don't we actually like make it fun? So we bought all these like giant stuffed animals so we put like a giraffe and like some Sesame Street <laughs> character. And then there's like an elephant with their head on the bar and like a cigarette and an ashtray and a beer can. And just like, we just made it like a fun scene. And when we sat every other table, we like stylized the empty tables. Right. With like, again, something, something, yeah. stuff, something that you want to take a photo of. Right. Or just instead get... of a sign that's like, don't do this. Yeah, you know, don't, don't sit here. This is off limits. That's or right. Whatever. And the place we bought the bakery for the second daily in Atlanta, that was like, and it used to be a bakery. I thought I could buy it and flip it for like cheap. And it's actually, we're going to spend a million three opening up daily which is insane to me. <laughs> My wife says, you have to stop calling it a coffee shop. I'm like, how are we yeah. spending a million dollars plus on a coffee shop? She's yeah. like, call it a restaurant and it'll make more sense. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, but it was like still operating like early COVID. It was like, you walked in, there's, you know, tape on the ground and you couldn't use the bathroom. I was like, people, you know, yeah. it's 2021. Yeah. We like we can it. use the bathroom, you know, <laughs> like nothing's going to happen if you let customers use the bathroom. Right. And so, um, I felt like a lot of businesses were stuck and sort of in that period, I was like, we got to figure out what hospitality looks like. Mm -hmm. And now I think like now it's a different period of like, I, I think one of the things that I hope that any, any people who are not restaurant people out there hear and think about is like, most of you have moved on from COVID and I, I'm not, there's no judgment on that. Like, great. I'm happy for you. I'm not saying there's anything wrong. I can't move on from COVID because I got two people out right now with mm -hmm. COVID and I'm still dealing with it all the time with our yep. staff, right? And yep. so I, I get that everybody wants to move on, but I, you're going to look at an empty section that I can't staff because I don't have anybody because mm -hmm. the person scheduled for that shift is out with COVID and we're really thin staff. And like the interesting thing to me, I remember this semi-related, but like March, right when COVID hit, I remember looking at a, somebody and I said, to them, well, the one thing that's going to come out of this is like our staffing struggles are going to be over. You know, because I yeah. thought like half the restaurants would close and after right. everybody been now laid out, all these people, I know I was like, I was like, so like, <laughs> this is going to really suck. Yeah. But on the flip side, we're going to be back to like our rule of thumb used to be for every job opening. We wanted to see 10 applications. We wanted to interview three people or four people. And we wanted to hire one, maybe two, if we found two great people. Yep. That was like the, that was the ratio, the 10 applications yeah. for everyone. And now it's like, we'll post an ad and if we get an applicant we're yeah. excited about yeah, it yeah, right we're seeing it's, that too it's not yeah and so uh, i think like if we want to dig into this like there's been a lot that we've done to try to just figure out how to handle staffing in this era yeah let's talk about it cool because i think that's something that we've had to we've had to like think about you know deal with because you can't just close your eyes and say oh yeah they're gonna come eventually like we've yeah. got businesses to run and so part of what i think is that 
our approach to the restaurant industry was not one of it being a career for people. It was a transient job that some people would do while they're in school, while they're right. earning a degree, and then they'll move on to do something else. And the mindset wasn't that I'm, I'm in this because I'm a hospitalitarian or I'm a restaurateur or I'm a chef or I'm a, it was, you know, this isn't my life, my career. And I think that's one of the switches that we've tried to make is say, how do we make either serving for us, being a, um, a server or a, or a line cook for us, is that a career decision where you can earn a livable wage? Where you can have a car payment and put your kid in summer school or whatever. Like, none of these things I think were available in my mind to back of the house employees, like mid level restaurant people, right? Right. You're living paycheck to paycheck for so long. I mean, I did it. Yeah. I mean, I did it until not too long ago. Yeah. You know? So, how do we reapproach that? Yeah. What have have you guys kind of. I remember, but just uh, one thing that we did early at the, like pre pandemic at the daily was we started pooling and splitting all the tips and daily, if you don't know, is counter service. And so we put a sign at the register. So the department of labor's thesis is that you as a customer or tip, you know, if you leave a tip, you intended to go to the person that you're tipping, right? My thesis is if you leave a tip, you really intended to go to the whole staff that made your experience happen. Mm-hmm. But the department of labor interprets it as different. It's obviously their, it's their right and their right <laughs> yeah, by law. Right. Um, so what we did was we put signage up that said, if you leave a tip in this tip jar is going to get split with everybody. Um, and if you want your tip to go to a specific person, let the person at the register know that that tip is for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, we just try to like get around that. Everybody gets paid more than the federal minimum wage, so we don't claim the tip credit. That's like inside baseball stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, that allows us to pool tips. And so I remember one of our line cooks was like, his lease was up. He was looking for an apartment. He's like, it's really hard to find something. And I was like, what's your budget? And this is the daily, this pre-pandemic. And he was like, 1400 a month. And I was like, damn, son. Like, <laughs> you can afford it. Like, yeah. I'm so proud of myself right yeah. now. Like, I got a line cook yeah. who's, who's got a $1,400 a month yeah, apartment. That's like, amazing. <laughs> that's fucking badass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's what's possible, Yes. honestly, when you pool tips. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's, I don't know if people realize, like, the ratio, the gap between working in the front of the house where you could walk with $300, $400 a night in tips and working in the kitchen where your paycheck for the week might be $400 after taxes. Yes. And that's not being like underpaid. That's being paid 15 bucks an hour, which is not like out of the realm for now. It's pretty much entry level mm-hmm. uh, prep cook dish porters, maybe make that much. Mm-hmm. You work 40 hours. That's 600 bucks after taxes. You got 400. Somebody could be on the front of the house, same restaurant making that a shift. Right. Yes. So, I don't know how that's fair, but that's a system that you and I have inherited. Mm-hmm. And most people who've tried to b- break it or redo it have failed. Um, you even saw like post-pandemic, Danny Meyer, who's got mm-hmm. plenty of resources and plenty of name brand, went back, went away from tip included and went yep. back to, to tip. Um, and so it's been, it's a hard nut to crack. So yeah. what we've done is one at all our counter service spaces, we moved to pooling tips. We yep. haven't gotten there on the full service places. The, some other things that we've done just from a staffing standpoint is um, we used to try to make it really hard for somebody to get a job with us Yes, because we wanted them to value it. Like to me, it was like pledging a fraternity. Like mm-hmm. you had to go through a hell week and a whole bunch yeah. of hazing. The, the, yeah, the training then, was hardcore. But then you're going to get a tattoo with the like <laughs> yeah. Greek letters on your arm and you're going to do it. You're going to be into it for life, right? Yes. So we used to like, my first restaurant, we didn't have app, paper applications, right? It was like people came in. You know, you guys hiring? Yes. Can I get an application? We don't have one. I just want to see what they do. 
I wanted to watch them leave. Yeah. Go figure it out and come back. If you want to work here, you'll go get an application from somewhere else. You'll make your own application. Yeah. You'll come back the next day yeah. asking for one. Like, yeah. you won't just give up. The right. person who's just like, well, what do I do? I was like, they're not going to be a good employee anyway. And then we used to make them do, you know, some kind of thing, some channel. We try to, in, in the interview, find out about them. So if they told us they're a musician, we'd be like, go get your instrument, come back, play a song. If the people clap for you, can't tell them they need to clap, but yeah. you finish playing. If they clap for you, you're hired, you know, yeah. just some silly shit like that, just yeah. to make it memorable for them. Uh-huh. Now we don't even stage people because I'm I, my whole thing is South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia. We live in the South. N- not going to share my judgment on this, but it's at well state. So you can fire people for any reason at any time. Yep. I'm like, let's flip the script, right? Like instead of setting up a stage. Just look at their whole first week as a stage. Yep. And by the way, in like an hour, you're going to know if they're good or not. So why don't we interview them, tell them they're hired, yep. ask them when they want to start. Stop telling people on Tuesday that yeah. you start next Monday. They're not even going to be around next Monday. Like, when do you want to start? You want to start tonight, tomorrow? You want to start Monday? That's fine. And then if they're not good and we don't think we can get them there, then let them go. Yep. Like, we can look at it as a stage, but we don't have to tell them it's a stage. Right. Uh, and I'm not saying this in a dishonest way. I'm just saying... Let's flip the script because so many people are so desperate that they'll just call you and say they'll offer you a job without an interview. Right. So that's been part of it. We have improved our benefits. So one of the things that we did is coming out of the pandemic, I finally had like the balls to do something that I've been talking about doing for a long time. So we added a 2% surcharge to every check. We call it our healthy hospitality fee. And uh, roughly half of that, I mean, no more than 1% we keep to lower the business's costs of providing benefits because it got to be a significant light item for us, uh-huh. like mid single digits line item. Yeah. And we were really having to make difficult choices between keeping the benefits going and keeping the business going. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying exactly one to one, but when you're losing money and you look at things and you're spending 4% on benefits, you got to start asking how important they are. So yes. part of it is going to lower our cost, but the one, the other percent goes to lower the employees cost of benefits. So, We've been able to take just recently with sales now back to pre-pandemic levels. We just took our health insurance down to 25 bucks a week from $225 a month. So we basically halved it for people. And now we pick up 20% of their uh, significant other. Uh, we started offering maternity, paternity benefits. Like I'm working on fast. Like the next thing I want to add is pay time off for hourly people. So if you don't know, like nobody hourly in the restaurant business gets paid time off. No. But why not? You know, yeah. some people are hourly just because they don't want to go to salary and they feel like they might get taken advantage of uh, on a salary when they could be scheduled for 60 hours, even though they're not trying to work, et cetera. So um, hourly for PTO, I mean, PTO for hourly employees. So those sort of things. I mean, I don't know that we've like figured it figured out. Figured it out yet. I know that we also, we for a while have had a simple IRA. Like one of my theories is that we're working towards is like, making the information about your your accumulated savings more readily available to you because right now you only get a report every three months i feel like if you if you could log in or once a week you knew or every two weeks uh, so we match up to two percent most of our staff saves 25 bucks a week and we match 25 bucks a week so my theory is like if you're constantly saw that information maybe you're not in the past few months with the market but like if you saw that more often you'd be more motivated to keep to stay with us and right and once somebody hits like eight ten grand 
I like at that point, it's really hard to go get another job when you're like, wow, I've been here for three, four years and I've got 10 grand. Right. I don't want to, I don't want to lose that. Right. right. I don't want to walk away. And to your point, it's like, now you can tell your parents, this is professional. I've got yeah. an IRA. I've got maternity benefits and paternity benefits. And so, yeah, I mean, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's also been like, you know, a month ago, we had 17 people lined up in one week to come interview. And I think one of them showed up Yeah, and we hired that person and it was a mistake. And I, the first time I met this person, I was like, this is, what are we doing? (laughs) Yeah. Whoopsie. And they were like, no, we, they were the only person that showed up. They were like, we went one for 17 on interviews. (laughs) And so like we needed a body and I'm like, all right, like, if you don't fire that person, I'm going to fire that yeah. person. Cause like inevitably we're going to have to fire this person. Right. Which I finally did about a week ago. So there were two, <laughs> three months they made it. Um, I mean, we're trying to get faster at like calling people, scheduling their interview, hiring, offering them a job. Mm-hmm. And then obviously like rule number one is like, if you're in a hole, stop digging. So like yep. trying to also retain the staff that we have, uh, we've been working towards this like, survey i'd like to do like every quarter every six months a survey of all our staff Mm -hmm. so we sort of see like over time are people like more or less happy working for us Mm -hmm. and dig into things a lot of it's leadership i mean you and i were talking about this like just earlier like just having the right person who's there unlocking the doors every day and i think a lot of people want the education piece which is what you were saying with the yesterday shrimp i think it's more interesting for the server staff when they're learning those sort of things totally but, you know, like I told you earlier, I'm great at the ideas. The implementation is why I have good partners. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your leadership, like your, your partners and your, your team. How do you find them? How do you recruit them? What are you looking for in those people? And who are the right people for you in, in, in your team? I know for us, you know, we, we tend to take younger management, people that are a little green, that don't have experience and just understanding that we're going to have to put the effort in to teach them what we want them to know um, and give them a place to go. But what's your approach to finding good leadership? Yeah. For a while that was our approach. And then in like the end of 2019, I think it was, we were like, this is not the right approach for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like we thought that between me and my director of ops and the other ops people that we could support those people. And I was like, we just have a bunch of like green managers that we can't hold it's hard for us to expect greatness from them and it's hard for us to hold them accountable because they're young in their careers. And so we're basically just bopping around problem solving all the time and it's not how we should be spending our time. So we actually like blew the whole thing up. We took our like ops people and asked them to go be GMs of locations. Mm -hmm. And then just said that like anybody that leaves, we're going to replace them with somebody who's much more professional. Yep. I used to think I want the green people. I want to train them. And now I think, I want the people that like Chef Jamie's trained, Tom Colicchio's trained, right. Bobby Stuck. Like I want the people that Amanda Cohen's. Like right. now I want people who've come out of like who've somebody else has invested that time and we can benefit from them and right. I'll pay up for it. Yep. Well, I think one thing one thing to balance and, and you touched on this and it's something that we're we're dealing with now. Like we're currently in that that cycle is, you know, hiring and bringing people up is a great way to do it if you have the time to invest in them and you have the focus to invest on them yeah and it's not just like sporadic moments here and there because i think retention is a hard it's hard for people to retain that kind of training if it's like for a day or two 
and then you know you circle back in a couple of weeks and it's like it's all gone so that's interesting that you guys you know have have taken a different approach how's that working for you as right. far as finding and, and i would say and recruiting when i was in the restaurants every day that sort of like find the green person who's really passionate i had the time to do that mm-hmm. it, I sort of realized at one point, I just don't have the time. I'm not doing them any favors because they're green. I'm throwing them in. I don't have the time to, like, support them. So this new system is honestly much better. I mean, I think to some extent, like, you get what you pay for um, in our business with staffing. Mm -hmm. um, I would say now, like, we're paying a lot for some not excellent staff. I don't mean in our business. I just mean in the industry. Yes. Like, staff's expectation. And I think it's great. Like, I am all for the fact that people get paid more like nobody should have to work like you and I work on the line making 10 bucks an hour or no. 11 bucks an hour. And if, yeah. they, if you're listening to this and you're out there making 10, 11 bucks an hour, <laughs> like unless you're in a small town in the middle of the country and there's just not a lot of jobs, like yeah. there's a better paying job out there for you. Maybe yes. also a better job. So I, I think it's great. Like, I think it's great that a line cook at the daily can afford a $1,400 a month. That's apartment. awesome. And it's a livable wage. Yeah. So I don't chagrin it. I don't feel like they've taken money out of my pot. Like, it's all good. I think it's positive. My problem is now when people come in and they're like, I have to make X, and X is just not reasonable, and I haven't even seen what you can do. Yep. That, to me, feels a little off. And I know that, like, one of the things that happened in Nashville uh, was, like, these large hotels came in with big F and B operations. The Thompson, which was John Besh's restaurant group, mm-hmm. was really the first that did this. And they have like they're looking at Rev Bar revenue per available room, and they're charging three ninety nine for a room. And you know, if you need your shirt dry clean, that's twenty four bucks. Like they have all these revenue centers, and they need the restaurant to function. And having somebody pick up the phone and order room service. And them saying, I'm sorry, we're short staffed is not an option. Right. So they just came in and they basically said, we'll pay $3 over market. And they pulled a lot of cooks from a lot of places. Some of it was because, you know, Besh's reputation had not yet been rightfully tarnished. Right. Uh, Some of it was because they were paying more. And so um, it's interesting to see some of the things that are happening in Charleston and thinking that might be coming Uh here too. But just a frame for folks who are out there, like we're paying our restaurant, we're up about 40% on kitchen wages versus pre-pandemic. Um, our costs are way up on a lot of ingredients. Yep. We have not raised our price. For a long time, I was like, we're going to hold our prices. We're going to try to fight inflation. Yep. Uh, and now I'm just like, can't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know that people see that. And I don't know that they're necessarily thinking about the fact that the meal they're eating, the beef costs more the oil costs more to fry their fries in the staff is another 40% the mm-hmm. to go boxes. I mean, the weird thing about sandwiches is I was talking about cold shoulder earlier is like when I had the first butcher and B was just a sandwich shop, right? So it was like 11 bucks, 12 bucks for a sandwich. If you're good in the restaurant business, you're making 10% to the bottom line. So on right. that $11 sandwich, we maybe made a dollar 10. We never got to 10% there, but, right. uh, but in a, in, that's in, a good in, margin in a for mar, you know, yeah. in a good margin, we made a dollar ten. If you ate half your sandwich and asked me for a box, my profit just went from a dollar ten to seventy cents. Yep. Because that box costs forty cents. Because yep. I'm using a compostable box because I care, care about that yeah. stuff, right? So it's like, you know, and if you got a box for that and a box for your side, I don't know. Maybe I broke even now. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it's so 
the margin is so thin. And I think that's a really hard thing to communicate to customers because, again, from that story about Melo, my first restaurant, they're like, oh, you're packed and you must be doing so well. And you really want to be like, everything's great. You don't want to be like, oh, man, let me tell you, actually, yeah, everything's great till that guy asked for a box for yeah. a side and a box for a sandwich. You know? Right. So I don't know. You know, it's again, like none of us are in this just for money. All of us could go do something else and probably make more and have a better quality of life <laughs> on a, from a work life balance right. standpoint. And, and I get it. I get that customers don't necessarily want to know all the issues. They just want to they're coming in. We're not charging them less because we're short staffed. Right. And right. so I think it's reasonable for them to have the expectation. I, I do think some reset out of covid you know, I think a lot of us have realized like the customer isn't always right. And yeah. I think that what listeners of this podcast, I'm sure are nice and caring, but, but what you may not know is some of your neighbors are assholes when they go out to eat. Um, mm -hmm. and, and didn't, didn't give our staff the grace that they should have when these folks were dealing with peak COVID yep. and we're dealing with all the challenges of trying to navigate work in that kind of environment. And so, you know, it's not that the customer is never right. It's not that the customer is always right. Right. You know, and, and there really hasn't been, if there was more of a restaurant shakeout, I think that we may have have more leverage to say, this is what we do and this is what we charge. And there might've been enough demand, but I think there's sort of this weird, you know, period now where not as many places as we thought would close, close. A lot of new places are opening, even though most locals in Charleston tell me they can't get a dinner reservation. <laughs> Just generally, yeah. like, you know, it's impossible to get a reservation in Charleston. Right. You know, we're in this period where as a restaurant, we're dealing with rising costs and we're chasing revenue. And so we're still our tendency is still to try to, you know, do what we can to make customers happy, which is a good one. But we just need to figure out where that balance is. Right. And then I think part of it, too, as, a, as an operator or as a restaurant owner, too, is like. No, knowing that the, that the customer is not always right. Right. Like taking that out of the equation and say, yeah, we're here to please them, but, you know, not at the expense of our staff, not at the expense of our establishment. Like if they're not going to, if guests come into our place and won't respect what we do or the people that are there, then you know, we'll toss Like you can go somewhere else, mm -hmm. you know, like I think that entitlement or, you know, lack of grace, you know, when you come out to eat, like grow up, you know, these people are here to to serve you and to take care of you, but they're not your servants, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, if, I, I think if we could reset that notion in some of the public's kind of thing, that would be a huge <laughs> And I don't know if going to service included is the answer, right? Because I, I yeah. do think that some incentive for the staff mm -hmm. to be more hospitable is important. Yeah. And I, I don't I'm, know if it's fair to the guest. It's like you're going to pay the same amount yeah. no matter how well we take care of you. Uh, but I do. I don't love that transactional yeah. aspect of like I'm going to do my song and dance and try to make you as happy as possible and hope that you're going to then tip me as you know. Yeah. So I don't know how to thread that. Yeah. Um, and I think most people want a tip. Yeah. I think most people would not. You know, they may not want to haggle over their car price. They might like right. the idea of like. This is the price of the car, but I think most people want to have the control of saying you did a great job or you did an excellent job or I'm going to tip you a little bit more, a little bit less. 
even though I think most people already know what they're going to tip when they sit down. Right. But I think you but I think you're absolutely right. I think it's that control thing. It's their choice. Yeah. Right? They're not being told they have to do it. It's up to you. And the amount is up to you. And I yeah. think that that goes a long way for a lot of people. Um so we're 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 over an hour. I don't want to take a ton of your time. Um I know Mosley's over there going, "Come on, guys, let's get to it." But I want to ask you about some of the mentorship stuff that you're doing. Yeah. Because I think that's super important and super positive. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always enjoyed helping people start businesses and seeing people like go out on their own, including like people that work for me. I'm very proud that like 10 restaurants in Charleston have either come out of Butcher and Bee or did pop-ups at the Daily or came out of Workshop. Um, I think just out of Workshop, we got 10 brick and mortars. And then just seeing like you know, Quife started as a pop-up at the Daily. And, like, I love that story. Dave Schutenberg had two different restaurant jobs and got the short end of the stick at both, I thought. And I ate the second restaurant I ate at. His food was amazing, but it didn't match the atmosphere. It didn't match the music. And I remember the the owner came by, did a table touch. And, I, and it, how was everything? And I was like, listen, like, the food's outstanding. Doesn't make sense with the artwork, with the music. Like... If I may, like, let Dave cook his food, let him play some rock and roll, turn it up, and you're going to be super busy. This will be the next, like, Jai Bao, yeah. you know? Yep. Uh, and his response was like, well, this is old Charleston home, and it's this and that. It was like he had this aggressively flavored Southeast Asian food, and he had asparagus with a poached egg on the menu at the same time. And I was like, you're trying to – this is like a middle. It doesn't work. So when he left that place, I said to him – I want you to do something at the daily, but like it has to be your concept mm -hmm. and you either, it has to fail because your idea sucks or it's going to succeed because your idea is great. But mm -hmm. like, I am not going to tell you what music to play, how loud to play it, how aggressively to season your food, what plates to put it on. Like all that's going to be your decision. And at the end of the day, you're either going to realize that you just don't know what you're doing or that you're onto something. Yep. And he did a year at the daily and now they're in James Island and uh, I think still doing like awesome food. And also I think like learned something about the way we had that deal structured at the daily. I think they took that knowledge and structured, I don't, uh, I don't know the details of their deal, but I think that they saw what they did there that worked and sort of were able to come to a similar agreement. I think it's win-win for the poor house where they are. Um, so I've always liked that. And I'll do it. Like if anybody's listening to this and you reach out to me, like my first and last name at Gmail, or you can hit assist at Butcher and B, nothing else. I'm not great at email, so I may lose it. If I don't respond, just write me back. It's not on purpose. I'm happy to like hop on a phone call and talk to you about your business idea and your concept. I love strategy. I love marketing. I love concepts. I just enjoy doing it. I used to be a mentor at the Harbor Accelerator. Restaurants or not, obviously, I know a little bit more about restaurants. But yeah, I mean, I think if I can help people avoid mistakes or just... Like, I don't know what the answers are, but I probably know what questions I can ask you to help you think through them. Mm -hmm. So I love doing it. You know, we've done some of that with the uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition. I know we're over time, so we're probably not going to have time to talk about that. No, no, RC, let's talk about it. But uh, no, listen, this is on your schedule. Yeah. If you got time, cool. let's talk about it. Well, I think that's that's important, too. Yeah. I mean, very <laughs> proud to have been part of the IRC just about since founding. I remember early on. um, my friend Harry Root, who's a wine distributor here, but also just a great connector of people, invited me onto a call. And I was like, Harry, I don't like this is way out of my league. This is like Thomas Keller and Tom yeah. Colicchio. Like you got all these like Caroline Stein, like you got these heavy hitters. 
Like I'm, I'm going to make way for like the <laughs> yeah. Sean Brock's and Mike Lottas of the world. And Harry was like, no, no, you got to stay engaged. You got to stay engaged. So I stayed engaged. I worked on a lot with their policy on the policy committee. Um, I actually helped write the bill that became the restaurants act that became the RRF, um, worked on the PPP fixes for like round two. And actually I think they got fixed in round. I think they was retroactively fixed for round one. They gave us more ways to use the money. And now I think sort of an interesting period for an independent restaurant coalition, because the only thing that really exists to represent the restaurant industry is the national restaurant association, which has a lot of positive qualities, but it's certainly not set up to speak for the small independent. Right. Um, and if you just think about where their funding comes through and where their constituencies are, and you know, mm-hmm. if you look at the seminars that they're putting on, it's like, it's the kind of stuff it's like, I don't know if you ever had this happen to you, but like somebody once tried to sell me the idea that styrofoam was better for the environment than like plastic or compostable <laughs> or something. And they had right. all these valid reasons. Yeah. And it is like, <laughs> you actually work for the styrofoam industry. Right. So it's like, yeah. that's the, these are the folks who are underwriting the national restaurant association. And so they have right. to, they have to stand up for their constituents. Yep. Nothing wrong with it. It's just not the voice of small independent restaurants. And so right. I think the IRC can be that, but we're at kind of an interesting point. And anybody who's out there listening, like, please consider joining, you know, not necessarily for the money because we charge very little for membership, but just join to get active to help shape it. Because I think that we're coming out of this period where we're just fighting for government support, for federal government support to the response to the pandemic. And now we're getting into this period where we can help shape the next farm bill and we can help shape labor laws and we can, and there's a lot of people like you and me who think that like, I don't know what your stance is on the federal minimum wage is, but I know enough about sort of your thoughts and your policies that you would support certain like improvements for labor for our staff. And that you probably would like to see that universal for everybody. One, because it would balance out their costs with your costs, right? And two, because it's just better for staff. And three, it's not like you're getting this flock of people who are coming to you just because we offer more robust benefits. Most people don't even find out about that until the interview, right? Right. So, So I think we have a chance to shape this stuff, but we're also coming out of this period where we're singularly focused on that. And you're also at the end of like two years of a slog. So it's hard to like get up the energy to now right. be like, all right, now we're going to take on big ag. So do you think, do you think, farm bill. do you think the independent restaurant coalition needs like fresh blood? Does it need like, it, it needs it like an infusion of like Hundred- motivated people that are like, okay, thank you. By the way, thank you yeah. for your work on that because um, it's like a relay race. And like those of us who got it to here are now exhausted. Right. And it's like, we were on two zooms a day for a year and then four zooms a week for a year. And now it's like one every week or two every week. If you're on the board, um, or now I think we're every other week. Uh, but we're just exhausted. I mean, I see the people on the board. Most of us were on the initial board and then ran for once we formed a like board of directors, most, you know, half of us ran for that and we're tired and we actually, we do need people, that care about these things. And we need to sort out like, are we there for like the corner store that's serving like fried food and styrofoam boxes too, because they're small and independent. And some people say that we are, Yep. I'm what I'm going to say now is not a surprise to anybody who's been in the room with me. To me, we have to stand for something. What I would like to see us stand for is a better food supply system, better, more environmentally friendly practices, more labor focused practices. Like 
I don't mind if we lose some people because we say the U.S. should have a standard of no styrofoam uh-huh. or should have a standard where you have to offer these benefits at any size company. I, you know, there are a lot of people who don't want to touch the minimum wage issue because a lot of restaurant owners, their business model is built on paying people two thirteen an hour and they make up the minimum wage with tips. Yep. And then there's a number of us who are like, this is a flawed system and we pay for it elsewhere. And if everybody had to pay federal minimum wage, then we all would raise our prices or we all be on the same playing field. And so it's actually uneven right now that some people do it and other people don't. The people that do it pay the price for doing it. And so I think it's a great, this would be a great time for anybody listening to join, to come to the calls, to share your opinions, to get loud, to think about running for a board seat. There'll be some board seats coming up at the end of this year. Like we need fresh energy to take us to the next phase Uh because the game in Washington is, you know, just the NRA does not want another voice for restaurants. They want the members of Congress to have a question about a policy. They want them to go to the NRA. And that's, that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's how all of us would operate. Right. Right. Like I would rather them just come to us to the IRC. And so, and so without that infusion of fresh blood, without people who are like, I will help raise money for the organization. I want to sit in on policy conversations. I want to, you know, the farm bill is going to be probably a thousand pages when it's written. Somebody has to read all that stuff and, and then get on the call and say, here's the relevant sections where we need to fight. Yeah. So we need that. So if any of that speaks to anybody out there or to you, Jamie, yeah. um, <laughs> again, feel free to ping me, Michael Shimto at Gmail. Let's chat. I'll be love to introduce you and get you um, on the organization or just go save restaurants.com and join right now or do both. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. What else, man? Jeez. You're like, you're in it. <laughs> uh, one last thing, I guess we started, uh, in COVID, a nonprofit called pay it forward. Yep. This is a sort of a good example of leadership. Like I just, I had the idea. I knew there were some people on my team who were looking for some way to give back. Um, so I called them, I put the bug in their ear. They ran with it. They've done, they get all the credit. They've done 98% of the work. But and they also decided that at some point we're going to pivot from pandemic specific relief to being a safety net for F&B people. So like what I see, what you see, what other owners and chefs out there and managers see is that when somebody in our industry gets behind, it's just it's a cycle. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like your car breaks down. Now you got to spend 20 bucks each way on an Uber to work. Right. If you do that you're not going to be able to save up the money to get your car fixed, Uh right? If you can't get your car fixed, you're going to run late to work because your Ubers may be late. Uh, You run late to work, you have less hours. And and it's just sort of this downward spiral, right? You get COVID, you miss a a week of work, you don't feel great, you can't close, you know, you work shorter hours, you make less money, now you can't afford your rent, you can't afford your rent, you move out, now you're further from work, you know. It's like all these things. So we're not... I don't know that we're changing anybody's life, but like what we're trying to do with paid forward, paid forward, charleston.org is step in and stop that downward spiral. Yeah. Sort of step in and say like your car's broke. You can't get to work. Here's a check to help you fix that. Like you're out for a week because of COVID. Here's a check. It's not, it's not what you made in a week of serving or, or cooking, right. but it's something it's enough It'll- to help you pay that week's rent. And so, uh, that just, you know, Part of the part of our work is just making sure people know about us. So I appreciate yeah. the opportunity to to talk about it. Whether you're somebody out there who might need it, 
or you're a manager or somebody who needs the help anywhere in the tri-county area of Charleston, or whether you're out there listening and you just think it's an awesome cause and you want to get involved as a volunteer to donate or host a fundraiser or do a drink at your restaurant or something, we're there. We'd love for you to get engaged again. You know, how does, how does pay it forward work? How does somebody take advantage of it if they need it? Okay. So we got an application Spanish and English on the website. We review the applications at least twice a month. So part of our, part of our mission is to be really quick. Mm -hmm. Um, so usually people come to us. There are occasions like when Patois, when their owner passed away unexpectedly, uh, nobody could access. I'm hopefully this is, I'm not sharing anything. It's not okay to share, but like nobody could access the bank account. So like all their staff couldn't cash their last paycheck because the only signer on the bank account was the owner of the business. It's a logical thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but she passed away unexpectedly. Uh, so they were in this limbo. And so we stepped up and actually Mickey Basque backs called us. He's such a mensch. I love the guy. He mm -hmm. called us and was like, we need to do something. Let's do something together. And so I think he picked up half the tab. We picked up half the tab. We didn't, I don't know that we cashed everybody. I don't know all the details. Right. I don't think we cashed everybody's last paycheck. I think we cut everyone a check for like 500 bucks. Mm -hmm. When there was an apartment fire in West Ashley, similar thing, we sought out the people in F&B who were affected by that fire and we wrote them checks. But generally somebody has a need, they go to a website, they apply. Uh, we review the applications twice a month. And usually within three, four days, we get them a check. Awesome. Um, so what we're trying to do is like be faster than the Red Cross or your insurance claim or something because we understand like when you have a need, generally it's immediate. And, yep. you know, a lot of us, as you mentioned, even all the way up to owners are living week to week, paycheck to paycheck. Yep. So, um, so I'm glad it exists. There's other organizations like it elsewhere that are doing great work, uh, which is wonderful. But this... We're dead for Charleston, and a couple times folks have come to us and said, take it statewide. I'm like, you know, if you dangled a million dollars in front of us and said, take it statewide, we probably would, but we live in Charleston. We're focused on the F&B scene in Charleston. Yep. Um, so it's here. It's here for Charleston. Um, so we have a great executive director, Carrie Larson, uh, really thin staff. Even the executive director is part-time. We're trying to push out as much money as we can. We've already, I think, pushed out about seventy grand this year, which is good. Our goal was a hundred thousand in in grants this year. So and you're you're more than halfway there. And yeah, Omicron I mean, really was a yeah yeah because uh, by the time Omicron hit, the law that allowed us to pay people and get reimbursed by the government had expired. Mm -hmm. So we had more people out with COVID than ever, right? Without the ability to pay them. So, gotcha. and I mean, the good thing for restaurant owners, like what I'd say to you is like you're already helping these people, right? Your dishwasher right. comes to you that's been with you for two years and they need a loan to fix their alternator. Yeah. Whether you want to or not, you're probably doing it. You're right. And now you're in the cycle with them where it's like you're taking it off of their paychecks and now their paychecks aren't as big. Do you pay weekly or biweekly, by the way? Uh, we are bi uh, We are weekly. Yeah. So we moved to weekly too because yeah. I was tired. Yeah. I kept making loans to people. Right. And then that come off their next paycheck and then they couldn't get two weeks. We, we were biweekly in the early days. Yeah. Um, just for accounting ease and, and cost. It's like, better for the restaurant. Yeah, it's better for, for the sure. restaurant. But but like staff couldn't keep up, right? Yeah. Like even even people that were graduating up into sous chef positions and entry level management positions couldn't manage their you know yeah. which I understand. I mean yeah. we're we're busy doing all this kind of stuff and I'm not great with money either. So I get it. Like yeah. like every week. <laughs> so so yeah, so when you loan somebody money and you're taking it off their check every week you might just end up in a cycle where you're 
Their yeah. check's not enough. You loan them more money. You take it off the next year. So it's like it's the great thing for that. restaurant managers and owners. I'm like, just offload that to us. That's right. what we're here to do. So you can still help them. Yeah. Like help them fill out their application. Right. But now you don't have to loan them money. And it's not like we're loaning them money. It's a check. It's a grant. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's the process is involved enough. And we're now checking more rigorously to make sure that there's not fraud. Mm-hmm. But it's a grant. They don't yeah. have to pay it back. So it's a win-win. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you talked about that because I was, I was not really aware of it. And I'm glad you did because that's, yeah. that's an awesome tool for people. What else? Man, I feel like we've covered a lot of we ground. Have. We and have. I holy think, smokes, we might need to do a round two. I know. Well, and we like, could go for hours more, but yeah. I think it's a good place to wrap. And awesome. Let's go eat. Yeah, man. Michael, thanks so much, dude, for, uh, for coming by. I learned a lot, and uh, it was great talking to you. Thanks, man. It's yeah. nice to meet you in person after seeing you on TV. <laughs> and uh, you're just as likable uh, as you were yes. on TV in, awesome. in real life. So Thanks, man. Um, what, oh, no, I did ask you. I was going to say, if you didn't hear it, I forgot we talked about this while we were recording. Jamie is more than happy to take a selfie with you when you're in the restaurant. Oh, yeah, so if you see sure. him yeah. and you watch him on Top Chef or you didn't. Yeah. Or at the grocery store yeah, or whatever yeah. it happens. Wherever you are. It's funny. Corey, Corey laughs about it and my son laughs about it. Because at Disney World. Dude, I got called out at Disney World. Going, what, like, with so, like across the thing we hear like people everywhere, chef, chef. And I turn around. I was like, whoa, what's up, chef? People there things. I was like, what is happening right now? Like, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty So wild. maybe not at Disney, but yeah. in, definitely in the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's there. Yeah, and maybe sure. not if he's working the pass on a Friday night. But, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, come see him. Come see us. Yep. You know, Support local. otherwise we're all going to starve. That's right. All right. Thanks, bud. Thanks, man. Yep.